Kristen, thank you for being brave to share your story with us. You've been a role model for us as we journey with Jesus, and we want to be praying for you as you continue this process. So would you extend a hand out towards Kristen, and let's pray God's blessing over her life. Father God, Kristen is your cherished daughter whom you deeply love. Jesus, I thank you that you have given your life so that Kristen could be yours and that she could be free. And so God, we celebrate along with her the freedom from bondage. We celebrate along with her the freedom from depression and anxiety. And we celebrate the way that you have replaced those things with joy and with peace. And God, while we know this is not the end of the journey for her, we pray that you would sustain her through the journey, that in Jesus' name you would guard her heart, even as she makes these bold declarations, God, that you would, you would guard her and guide her. You would strengthen her moment by moment. And God, we pray that you would use her as a mighty woman of God to declare her story in bold ways, just as she's done with us. That you would take this difficult, broken story and you would redeem it for your good purposes. That we know that sin brings suffering, but that you, through your spirit, bring redemption and peace and joy. And so, God, we thank you for the way we can celebrate that in Kristen's life. And so, God, we pray as you uh, lead us into this path that leads towards surrender. All of our stories look different, and although the details may not look exactly like Kristen's, this story is our story. And so, God, would you meet us in our helplessness and in our need and bring us your peace? God, as we open your word, May you guard my words that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain. God, would you change us, continue to change us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kristen. The process of telling a story like that is obviously really difficult, but the, the beauty of where Kristen's story is right now is that she's come through some of those dark places and is turning towards some of the light and joy that's ahead of her. I'm also very aware that in a group like this, there's some of you who are still in those dark places. And whether we have been there, are there, or will be there, how do we encounter God in the midst of that? When we get to the end of ourselves and there's nothing left, how do we encounter God? How does he meet us and what does it look like for him to meet us? That's what I want us to look at this morning. And the good news I have for you is that Jesus has gone before us in this. It's one thing for him to tell us from afar that he'll meet us in those dark places. It's another for him to go into that dark place ahead of us. And that's the story that we're going to look at today, one of several times where Jesus goes into that dark place of surrender and paves the way for us. And so in Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to ask you to listen to a familiar story. Cindy's going to come and read for us. There she is. I lost her. 
She's going to come and read for us in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, would you listen to the story and the details of the story in a fresh way as best you can as you hear this story from Matthew 26? Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of, sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is to be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So how does Jesus encounter God, the Father, in the midst of that place of surrender? What's it look like for us to surrender to him, to open up our hands to him? I want us to look first at the nature of surrender. What happens when we come to the end of ourselves? What, what's that journey like? I think we see some of those things in Jesus' story. And then I want to look at the results of surrender. What, what happens when uh, we finally open up our hands? And then as we've looked at throughout the series, how do we encounter God in the midst of that? How, how do we encounter God when we come to the end of ourselves? So the nature of surrender, the results of surrender, and encountering God. Um, we're starting this story with Jesus coming out of the upper room and going into this garden, Gethsemane, and he is at the end of himself. He knows that his death is right around the corner. He knows that there's a weight coming upon him, likely already starting to come upon him, that feels unbearable. And the first thing we see is that there is a strange kind of loneliness that surrender brings. And when I say a strange kind of loneliness, I don't mean that there weren't people there. I mean, obviously, Jesus takes all 11 disciples with him. Judas has already disappeared to betray him. But the other 11 come with him. Eight, he seems to leave at the gateway of the garden, somewhere out in the garden. But three, he invites in with him, even into this close area of connection as he cries out to the Father. But even in that, they keep falling asleep. They, they can't stay with him. And if you've ever been in that place of absolute surrender where you know there's nothing that you can do and you're at the end of yourself, you know that there's this strange way in which even the closest community around you can't fully understand what you're going through. And that's what happened to Jesus. There are these people with him who he's invested in and poured his life into for all of these years, and yet they, they can't stick with him. It's just he and God. He's at the end of himself. Henry Nouwen, in his writing on solitude, highlights that kind of idea of surrender. Listen to what he says. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding 
No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothing that I have to face in solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run. The struggle is real because the danger is real. It's the danger of living the whole of our life as one long defense against the reality of our condition. What now I'm saying is that we get to this place of surrender, we lead right up to this place of surrender, and what many of us will seek to do is to fill our life with other stuff, other people, other things, so that we don't have to feel it. What Jesus does is boldly walk into this place of surrender, even with his closest disciples recognizing they won't even be able to go with him. It's he and the Father. And that point of release is one that we have to go alone. It's vitally important for us to have the community of faith around us. We need one another. But there's a point of of abandonment before God that each one of us as individuals have to encounter on our own. And Jesus stepped into that. There was a strange loneliness that came with his surrender. But there was also a longing, the longing of his heart. Let me read for you. He says to his disciples, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a bit further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus getting to the point of surrender wants to back away from surrender. And that's what happens to us. We, we get to this place and we know that we need to encounter him, but, but we back away. We're afraid. It was so clear in Kristen's story, that, that moment where she said, I know I need help, but not House of Hope. Oh my goodness, I would lose so much. All of my freedom, my phone, my boyfriend. I, I need help, but not that much help, right? How many of us come to that place of encounter with Jesus and, and he wants all of us and we pull back because it's just too much. Years ago, I was meeting with a spiritual director as I began down this journey that now uh, many of you have followed me along in in the way of spiritual formation and uh, engaging the ancient practices as well as the scriptures and community in this process of formation. But early on in that journey, I was sitting with uh, a spiritual director and I, I said to him, like, I've studied a lot of people, ancient and modern, who have been down this journey and every single one of them has crashed their life, and that's why they're on this journey. Like, like their, their marriage fell apart, their life fell apart, they're like their aorta blew out and they ended up in the hospital for a week or whatever, like all this stuff. Like, like how, does, how, how does this happen? Like, can't you just say, I want to follow Jesus? Like, can't, can't it be as simple as that? And I'm not going to get the wording exactly right because it was years ago, but what he said to me was something very close to this. You don't need to have a crisis, but you need to surrender. And most of us won't surrender without a crisis. We, we get to that place, and unless we have no other choice, we won't turn everything over to God. Jesus finally gets to that place in the garden where he's, he's wrestling and his response, knowing that this is the reason he came. His response is, Father, can't this cup pass for me? anything but this. 
surrender creates in us a strange kind of loneliness and this longing to not surrender in the midst of surrender. But when we get there, there are some things that begin to happen. There are some results that come from our surrendering. And the first result is in the rest of that verse. So let me read it for you again. This is verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's a whole lot that happened in that comma there on your page. Jesus comes to the Father and he says, can this cup pass from me, comma, yet not as I will, but as you will. What happened in between? Well, I would maintain that as happens when we reach that point of surrender, Jesus heard from God the Father. He heard his voice. And whether it was a clear direction that answered all of the questions or whether it was just a soft, no, the cup cannot pass from you. Either way, he heard the voice of God and his response was, but not my will, but yours be done. And I know that he heard from God because until we hear from God, we will continue to ask, God, if you would just listen to me, you would know that this is not the best path, right? Like we're constantly telling him, there's a, there's a better path, God. I know this surrender, like I, I don't, I, I know that I could confess this in front of everybody, but I don't feel like that's the best path. I know that I could totally rearrange my life, but I just feel like there's an easier way to do it than that. I, I know that I need to confront this brother or sister, but it seems like there's going to be a simpler pathway forward, right? We've been in those conversations. Can't this cup pass from me? And as Jesus hears from the Father, the response is, not my will, but yours be done. Dallas Willard, in his book, Renovation of the Heart, talks about that moment of surrender. Listen to the way he says it. Those who are not genuinely convinced that the only real bargain in life is surrendering ourselves to Jesus and his cause, abandoning all that we love to him and for him, cannot learn the other lessons that Jesus has to teach us. Not that he will not let us, but that we simply cannot succeed. If I tell you you cannot drive an automobile unless you can see, I'm not saying I won't let you. I'm saying you cannot succeed even if I do. What Willard's saying is we reach that point of surrender, and, and unless we are all in, unless we're willing to give our entire hearts before him, unless we're willing to open-handed lay our lives down, he can't fully shape us. It's not that he won't. It's not that he doesn't desire us to be shaped, to be more like him. It's that if we don't fully surrender, he just can't. He's saying to us that this is the pathway forward. With open hands, I will change you, but if I don't have those open hands, I can't because you're holding on to your own life. Jesus hears from the Father, and his response is, not my will, but yours be done complete and full surrender to him. And then what happens to Jesus is what happens to us. What the writer of Hebrews says is that Jesus learned obedience. It's an interesting phrase because we tend to think of Jesus as so fully God that he just had obedience Dale Bruner in his commentary on Matthew uh, says it this way, Jesus did not automatically do obedience like a God walking on earth. He learned obedience like a man praying through troubles. 
What happened when Jesus finally opened his hands in surrender was that he began to learn obedience. He began to walk a path that was distinct from his own, but it was the path that God had laid out before him. And that process led him ultimately to the reason he came, to the cross that would be the salvation for us, the centerpiece of Kristen's story and any of our stories that will put our hope in him. But it took that willingness to open his hands and to learn obedience. So how do we encounter God in the midst of that? When we're at the end of ourself, how do we encounter God? Well, I want to show you two more verses uh, that are right past what Cindy read for us. So if you go to the end of that passage, uh, go to verse 45. So Jesus, if we set the stage, Jesus has three times come to his disciples, three times they're asleep. Um, He's going and praying on his own because they've kind of left him on his own. So now he comes back. He comes to his disciples, this is verse 45, and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now listen to verse 46. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayers at hand. Why is that important? Well, again, I'm going to let Dale Bruner speak it because he says it so clearly. Jesus does not give up on his disciples. That is the most personal lesson. The last line of Gethsemane could have been, I'm finished with you. But instead, it's let's go. You see that at that moment, of any moment, the disciples are no help to Jesus. Like, the one thing that they could have done to sit with him and pray, they haven't even been able to do that. He's about to go be handed over to the most powerful killing machine known to man. They can't help him anymore. It would be perfectly appropriate for him to have said, you know what, why don't you just go home and go to sleep? I'll see you in a couple days right? He knows what's coming, but that's not what he said. He doesn't say, I'm finished with you. He says, let's go. When we're in that place of surrender, if we will look, open our eyes, and tilt up our heads, we will see, like Jesus, that the Father does not abandon us. And if we will look, open our eyes, and tilt up our heads, we will see that like the disciples, Jesus still invites us along. Even in the midst of the brokenness, even in the midst of the mess, he still invites us. I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and as you get there, I'm going to tell you a story that is not in 2 Timothy chapter 2, but we'll get there in a minute. Um, There are lots of stories of surrender throughout the scriptures, and so I'm going to tell you one that actually has a lot of precursor to what Jesus experienced in the garden. Uh, The story is found in Genesis chapter 32. Uh, There's a guy named Jacob. That name literally means heel grabber or deceiver. Um, He is part of the lineage of the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has run away from home because he has deceived his brother. And uh, in the midst of his prosperity there, he's running away from another space because he'd been deceiving his master there, and now he's coming back. And he's coming back full of anxiety. Um, uh, He's very concerned. He's not sure exactly what he saw his brother is going to do to him, but he's coming back home, and he's he's literally, um, well, first figuratively, wrestling with God. And then what we find in Exodus 32 is him literally 
wrestling with God. So the way the story is told is that, um, like Jesus, he leaves all of his family and closest friends um, on one side of the river, and he goes to the other side of the river. And from the, the sundown on one day until um, qu- quite intentionally, the writer of Genesis says, as the sun came up with clear symbolism, Jacob wrestles with God. He's at this place of surrender. He's at this place of like, I, I, I want to be in charge of me. I want to be able to fix this. I want to be able to take care of it. I want to be able to handle this. And he just can't. And, and there's a mystical component to this that I don't have time to fully unpack. But as best we can understand, God condescends. He, he becomes weaker so that Jacob can wrestle with him. And they wrestle all night. And in the morning, two things happen. The sun comes up. And the first, things that happen, first thing that happens is, not, this isn't the first thing chronologically, but the first thing I want to tell you about, is that um, Jacob's name has changed. He's no longer Jacob the deceiver, but he becomes Israel, the, the name that would be passed down to all of the descendants, the chosen people of God. In that name change, there's an identity that shifts. Because he was willing to wrestle with God, because he was willing to come to that point of surrender, because as he opened his hands, God changed who he was. Or maybe more accurately said, God made him fully who he was intended to be. God broke down the broken stuff. And what emerged was Israel. But if you know the story, there was another thing that happened. God touched his hip socket. And as best we can understand, through the rest of Israel's life, he walked with a limp. He was impacted in a very physical and memorable way. He had a scar that came from that wrestling. And if you've ever gotten to that place of surrender, you know that's part of the story. That as we open up our hands before God, he does incredible things in us. Our real identity is exposed and the false identity is broken down and and something emerges out of us, but at the same time, there's a scar. The power, one aspect of the power of Kristen's story is that there are scars that go with it. It's, It's difficult. It was not an easy journey. But God met her in the midst of that difficult journey and pulled out of her, her real identity, who she really is. God meets us in the midst of our surrender, and he draws out of us who we really are. So you're in, hopefully, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me just read for you a couple verses. This is a a saying that Paul seems to be recounting, one that uh, was maybe uh, a regular part of the early church. And as he writes to Timothy, he recounts it for him. This is what he says, starting in verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The promise of God is that even in the midst of 
pure desperation, of brokenness, of all of the mess of our life, even of the, whatever it is that we're holding on to, the stuff that we have, he meets us there and is faithful to us there regardless of our position towards him. Let me say it a different way. If we are willing to put our head up, it doesn't matter how deep the pit is and it doesn't matter how much the brokenness is, he is lovingly staring at us. His countenance, his intentional gaze is towards us. And he's bringing us peace, even in the midst of the brokenness. There is no way for you to be so faithless that he is no longer faithful. He will always be faithful. When we regularly come back to the Lord's Supper as part of our Uh, liturgy, part of the order of our gatherings, particularly through the Lenten season, what we're doing is we're coming back to a foundational moment, a a brick in the foundation of our faith. We're saying, however I feel in this moment, however I'm wrestling in this moment, wherever I'm at in this moment, I know that his body was broken and his blood was shed and he has given his life for me that I would receive life from him. And so before we respond to the message of surrender, I want us to come back to that place of remembering. Coming to a space where we can have our feet on the solid ground. It's hard for us to move when we're in quickstand. And the communion meal draws us back to a, a firm space where we can step forward.